Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my colleague, Gary Sheffer. And today, in the 65th episode of The Crux, we have as our guest one of the top names in communications research, Mark Wiener. And he's just written a book, Public Relations Technology, Data, and Insights, subtitle, Igniting a Positive Return on Your Communications Investment. Before we uh, speak with Mark, Gary, how are you doing? Great, Mike. Great to be here with you again on number 65. Wow. Who'd have thought, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and in fact, I was just I was just reading something on your your former company. Talk of breaking it up. Yeah, so GE announced today that uh, they're going to break the company up into three publicly traded standalone companies over the next few years. One, uh, the aviation business, one's the energy business, which they're going to combine a bunch of the energy businesses they have now into one energy business, and then the healthcare business, of course. So it really is an end of one of the, in many ways, uh, obviously mm -hmm. the GE name will still be around, one of the most standout businesses in the history of business, General Electric, founded by Thomas Edison, an inventor of many things that created modern life. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say, I'm feeling a little melancholy about it today. I understand the reasoning. I'm not an expert on all these things these days. The market craves simplicity. Yeah. Uh, capital allocation probably becomes simpler. But there was something to the conglomerate theory that businesses can be synergistic particularly in technology. And you think of things like power turbines and aircraft engines, which are similar in many ways in that they spin and create energy, right? Or use energy to propel things and create things. So anyway, it's a little bit, and, and the one thing, Mike, from a communication standpoint, although I'm sure there'll be some explanation of it is the business that's going to re retain the general electric name, I guess, is uh -huh. the aviation business. Which, that's interesting. That's interesting. Maybe they're going to, I hate to see them lose the electric out of it. Yeah. But when you've got a power business that generates 25% of the electricity in the world, you might think that would be the one that gets the electric name. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's, I, it's also kind of shades of, you know, a few years ago, DuPont merged with Dow. Yeah. Brought those two companies together and then split it up into three. Yeah, exactly. And look, that's the way the marketplace has gone. A friend of me, and I, first off, I wish everybody at GE great things and, and yeah. they're just terrific people. But a friend pointed out to me that two companies just a few years ago, IBM and GE, that were at the top of the sort of reputation chart and, and mm -hmm. today are five companies. Yeah. <laughs> so, <as laughs> pretty I, amazing. Huh? It is pretty amazing. So, uh, or will be soon, five companies. So, big day for GE. Yeah. Well, lots of items in the news this past week. Almost, it was hard to pick out what to discuss. I mean, we've got COP26 in, in Scotland, at Glasgow. We've got passage of President Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. 
one item I will recommend to our listeners, we're not going to talk about it too much, but is, is from this past Sunday's HBO program, is, is last week tonight with John Oliver. I love John Oliver. <laughs> and, and his main story is on electricity, but electricity in the U.S. grid. And he provides some interesting facts and more than a little humor to suggest we have to be careful about how we think about energy transition and, and, and moving to renewables. And, and all of that's not just going to be plug and play. So anyway, something to be viewed and something to get a laugh out of. I love um, John Oliver too, Mike. So I'm going to, when we're done here, I'm going to go watch it. That's, uh, <laughs> he's one of my favorites. He's one of my favorites. Gary, we've talked a bit on this show about politicians putting out misinformation that gets a life of its own these days on the internet. As the expression goes, it's hard to unring the bell. But something this past week, it's it's a little bit hard to understand how it happened, but underscores what has taken place in government and politics now seems, seems to be soon coming to a business near you. Uh, on the 5th of November, a rumor started, and it got circulated all over the internet. The CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, had been arrested for fraud. As that story moved and built on the internet, there was more information that was added to it. He had been arrested by the FBI. Posts even mentioned the circumstances of his arrest. The story gained even more attention. The problem is, is that the initial story, and the entire buildup of that story is absolutely, completely, and utterly false. So, Gary, you teach crisis communications at Mm -hmm. Boston University. What should communications teams do to blunt misinformation and rumors like this kind of rumor, especially in the internet age. Uh, and, and what do you have to do to correct the record on something like this? Well, you know, you, it's just this 24-7. Your team has to follow the sun, particularly when you're a big company like Pfizer, which has a great communications operation. You cannot not have coverage at some point. And you have to train your teams to understand what to do when they see something like this, right there, you, you have to talk to your teams and, and they have to ring the bell to, you know, use a phrase you just used, that's, this is happening out in the marketplace and could be affecting your stock price to the tune of billions of dollars. You know, this isn't new, Mike. I, I, I think it was yeah. like 10, 10 years ago, it was much, much less sophisticated than, than it is today. But I, at 2011, I think a group put out, I won't use their name, give them the satisfaction, a press release saying, GE was going to give the IRS $2 billion, give back $2 billion. This was at a time when it was reported GE hadn't paid taxes. And the fake press release went out. Bloomberg and I think some others fell for it and reported it. And all I can remember at the time was, I can't dial the telephone fast enough (laughs) to hit all of the wire services, really. And so you have to have some capability. And that's what I was doing. It's calling up Bloomberg, calling up Reuters, calling it's not true, it's fake, it's fake. And, and to get your message out instantaneously using technology. So can you triangulate the truth really quickly? And can you get your message out in a matter of minutes, I think is the thing, capability you need to look at. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When I was at Burson Marsteller, we had a, a client 
where the, somebody had put out on the internet some years prior that a particular brand of toothpaste had a carcinogen in it. Hmm. And it was totally false. Mm -hmm. But they were combating that years later because nothing dies on the internet. Yeah. And, and, and so part of this too is not only do you have to sort of cauterize this in the very beginning, mm -hmm. but you have to be thorough and vigilant over some period of time and probably, you know, go to, you know, setting up frequently asked questions and, 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 and information on your own corporate website so that people who have questions can be quickly referred to, you know, what exactly has transpired or not transpired in the case of a rumor that's wholly untrue. You know, I, I, in the past, Mike, you know, I've, there were rumors out that we had moved a particular business from one place to another overseas. <laughs> and even, <laughs> even I would, we would put pictures, photos of the business still located in the United States <laughs> and people wouldn't believe it. So you can do everything that you can sometimes, but people, unfortunately, living in a bubble, particularly, or a have a political point of view, you're not going to convince everybody. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, some years ago, National Geographic did a piece, and part of it was looking at the politics of the day, where there, there are certain things that uh, conservative-minded people could never totally accept, and there are certain things that liberally-minded people could totally accept, you know. And they and they have focused in in on on, on the conservatives, the unacceptance of of climate change, and uh, with with liberals, some liberals who were anti-vaccine, and in uh, anti-GMO, <laughs> and, and and they were explaining kind of the science that proved both of these groups wrong. But th they also pointed out that there are percentages when you do surveys of some people who still think the earth is flat. So exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, another item that caught my eye was the settlement of a shareholder lawsuit involving Boeing's 737 MAX airplane. And you might recall back in October mm -hmm. of 2018 that a 737 MAX crashed soon after takeoff in Jakarta. All 189 people aboard that plane were killed. Then months later, March of 2019, another 737 mm -hmm. MAX went down. Ethiopian Airlines flight crashed, killing 157 people. While Boeing did some of the right things in terms of expressing sympathy for the victims in each case, they also seemed to dismiss mm. the crashes initially as kind of pilot error. And then the planes were grounded, production of additional planes were suspended, Moody's cut Boeing's credit rating. And, and then that followed with a whole series of information leaks, investigations by governmental entities. Ultimately, this pointed to some technical challenges and to the need for greater pilot training. Mm. And, and much of that had been previously recommended even before the plane went to the marketplace. Back to the lawsuit, what makes it interesting to me is that it's a shareholder lawsuit mm -hmm. and that the defendants were the members of the Boeing Board of Directors. Ultimately, through director's insurance, $237.5 million is going to be paid 
too boring, but to, to the benefit of, of its share owners. And then the company also is required to add a board member with expertise in either aviation engineering or, or product safety oversight. The settlement is intended to send an important message to board members, to directors, that they cannot shortchange public safety or other mission-critical risks. Gary, you teach crisis communications. I'm curious about your thoughts on all of this and what lessons there may be, not just for corporate board members, mm -hmm. but for those who manage crises. You know, Mike, at, in, in my time at BU, I've did a whole case study sort of on, on this Boeing and the 737 MAX 8. And it's really interesting and, and disappointing in some ways on how Boeing handled this. And, and the students have learned a great deal from the discussion, I think. And I have a great deal of respect for the former head of communications at Boeing, Neil Golightly. And uh, he actually spoke to our class ah. uh, about, about some of the things that uh, went on during this period. But look, the lessons are clear and, and across the board. And one of the things you don't do in a crisis is state something with certainty about which you are uncertain. Mm -hmm. And the causes of this crash were clearly uncertain at the beginning and pointing the fingers at the pilots was a big mistake. But there are broader issues, Mike, that led to all of this, right? Maybe a board mm -hmm. and, and a leadership team that whose culture had lost its way, putting success of the company financially ahead of safety, the failure of the, of the regulator, in this case, to mm -hmm. properly oversee. So there's a lot of things that were sort of institutional and part of the system that went wrong. So it was a mindset. Yeah, totally, a mindset. But from a practical standpoint, as you talk about this case study, boy, the CEO is so important, right? When these things happen, and clearly in this case, the CEO was not prepared to be mm -hmm. a spokesman for the victims and, and for the air. Let's remember the airlines are their customers right. as well. So we talked a lot in our classes about how you prep CEOs for this kind of situation. And there are many, many examples. Uh, I forget the BP CEO. Oh, yeah. yeah, I want my life back, that kind of thing. So that is one lesson. And often you'll get pushback from CEOs who say, or senior executives, I got this, right? And as you know, when you're in one of these situations, things happen, people behave differently, things happen faster than a normal workday. And you really, as the communicator, have to get that executive team ready to triangulate the truth again, a, a phrase I love, but also mm -hmm. to respond in a responsible and informed way to the mm -hmm. crisis. Yeah, in some instances, I think with these crises, it's almost better in the early going to media train and get out somebody who's more at the tip of the spear than the CEO yeah, to try and deal with the facts of the case first, as well as, you know, assuring some sense of empathy to those that were impacted by the situation. You talk about, you know, the BP situation with Tony Hayward, I think. Tony Hayward, the, that's it. The yeah. name of the CEO at the time. And, and on one level, being inside of a C-suite, you can appreciate what he was 
feeling right at the yeah. moment but there's certain things that you have to you have to almost steal yourself as to okay so who's listening to this right and what is it going to mean to them at the end of the day they don't care about you they care about the situation and how it impacted them their loved ones or how does it impact them as customers or how does it impact them in terms of future customers mm -hmm. and, and so on so so i think coming at this more from a stakeholder first perspective yes. is really really key you know the, the uh, and i saw it work inside of a company when when i was at cargill we had an issue and it led to a very very large product recall but there was some tension inside the organization at the, at the point that we decided to call the recall on ourselves as opposed to waiting for some government agency or yeah. regulator to do it and it was interesting the dynamics because i'm sure that the person sitting inside that business that business unit of of cargill and cargill at the time had like 70 business units but inside that business unit you know that that the president of that business unit had to be very concerned about whether or not he was going to meet meet his number you right. know for that quarter or that year with this recall and so there might have been some hesitancy in terms of, of of moving quickly at the same time we didn't have all of the facts but what we did have began to indicate a pattern from what we could see from the the map of reported incidences is it overlapped with more than two-thirds of the distribution of our product yeah. and, and and so in comes greg page as the CEO yeah. of the corporation, and he said, public safety first, we're going to go ahead, we're going to pull the, the product out in an abundance of caution. And that's what we're going to tell our customers. And that's what we're going to help them tell the consumers, because we're going to provide all the packaging and all the product numbers to the media, so that people are not harmed. So, so, so I think it's that kind of, of care and that kind of again stakeholder first perspective that's really important in these yeah. situations and it all goes back mike to the of course the tylenol you know yeah. as as you know we all point to but because they had the same approach that you took mm -hmm. is we they didn't know the facts mm -hmm. but they knew the public was at risk and so they were going to pull the product and and cost be damned yeah yeah so the, the next item is, is, is interesting for what it might say for the culpability of consultants and, and agencies in providing counsel and advice in sticky situations. And both you and I have worked in, in, in agencies, but this, this one involves McKinsey and company. McKinsey had advised Purdue Pharma as it was working on Oxycontin, one of the more well-known op opioid painkillers that were being liberally prescribed and liberally used, and ultimately opioids in general as a category, not just Oxycontin itself, led to the addiction and deaths of some, some nearly mm -hmm. 500,000 people between 1999 and 2019, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So McKenzie had been a major consultant for, for Purdue Pharma, and now Congress is investigating McKenzie's role as a consultant in all of this, and what kind of role did they play? And there have been 
you know, papers, marketing suggestions, and so on, that are a little unseemly, things that you wouldn't want out there right. or on the front pages of the New York Times. So I have two questions for you, Gary. Mm -hmm. One, should McKinsey be liable for decisions made by its client, though maybe based in part on some information and advice provided to that client by McKenzie? And then two, what might this mean ultimately for PR agencies? Mm -hmm. And and what should they Great be question. doing to prevent being dragged into Congress or a court of law? Well, you know, and I have very mixed feelings on this, but the answer is no. I, I don't think you can project liability onto someone or an entity for recommend, a recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I'm sickened personally, by some of the actions of Purdue Pharma. And, mm -hmm. and if you, if you want to read a book that's very frustrating, it'll make you angry, Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family, yeah. and, and is really a great, great read. But ultimately, consultants recommend, and businesses and business leaders decide. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm loath to stand on the side of anybody involved in that debacle that went on at, at Purdue. But I just don't, you know, I wonder, Mike, if the McKinsey name has become a little bit more political yeah. and, you know, and, and therefore it's a target. And I would say to PR agencies, I, I would, this is a, I hadn't thought about this before, Mike, but mm -hmm. this is a great question for PR agencies. You know, a lot of agencies have decided not to represent certain, certain types yep. of clients, fossil fuel, et cetera. But the kinds of advice that you give to people is something that PR agency leaders have to think very carefully about. They got to think about the ethics. They got to yeah, totally. think about, you know, what are the implications? I worry a little bit because, you know, we talk on this show a lot about how certain lessons learned in, in government and politics quickly transfer to the world of business. And, you know, given the kinds of negative tactics that have been used in politics over the last few mm -hmm. years, yeah, you, you, you're a little frightened that, you know, there may be individuals in a large firm that go ahead and provide advice for clients mm -hmm. to do things that they think they can get away with, mm -hmm. but maybe aren't quite so ethical and maybe aren't quite so much about telling the truth. And, and so you worry about that. I'm with you that, I mean, one of the challenges with any consultancy, whether it be general business marketing or, or, or IT or advertising or public relations is the challenges that the agency or that consultancy doesn't necessarily have all the facts and the detail information right. that the corporation has. At the same time, I think a lot of it in terms of culpability should depend upon, you know, kind of the question from Watergate, you know, what did you know and when did you know it? Right. So, so that if they did actually know certain things that led to uh, real difficulties for people's health, or led to some untruths being per purveyed in the marketplace. Uh, I think there's a big question around, are, are they really culpable? And I think it's a, a legal question, not a, not a question Mike Fernandez can yeah, easily exactly. answer. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and it, it matters, Mike, how involved are you in the fraudulent activity that's 
based on your recommendation. In other Absolutely. words, if you're you're involved in the execution, then I can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, every week we seemingly have something <laughs> out of the sports world. Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers has COVID. He apparently lied to his team that he was vaccinated. And he is now facing a storm of criticism and controversy over his approach. NFL players, you know, right now do not have to be vaccinated, but they have to follow pretty strict, you know, protocols. And there's lots of extra restrictions in terms of, you know, where they have to sit on the sidelines, you know, what they have to do in terms of social distancing, the wearing of masks, I, I think even, you know, where their locker sits in regards mm-hmm. to other players. But in, in August, Rogers had even done an interview where he told reporters he was immunized. But last week, course, he tested positive, came out that he was unvaccinated. Rogers is defending his language. He's saying he's allergic to an ingredient in the mRNA vaccines, and that he came up with an alternative regimen that he wanted the NFL to treat (laughs) as vaccinated. And he also stated that he turned to a podcast host for treatment of the virus. It wasn't this podcast host, I'll tell everybody (laughs) that. Bottom line, Rogers lied to reporters, endangered teammates, and spread misinformation about COVID-19. His team also lost its game this week without him to the Kansas City Chiefs, 13 to 7. And the Chiefs aren't the Chiefs of last year, by the way. (laughs) Uh, The NFL is investigating Rogers, who could face fines if he's found to have violated league policies. And then companies that he does advertising for have taken two very different reactions. Previa Health, a major healthcare provider in Wisconsin, has announced that they are finished with Rogers. Mm -hmm. No more partnership. State Farm, my former employer, uh, (laughs) seemingly has doubled down. They said that while they did not agree with Rogers' position, that he had a right to his own views and that he is a great ambassador for their brand. That said, there's been reporting that actually there hasn't been much, much, many sightings of State Farm ads with Aaron Rodgers in them (laughs) since this broke ground here. Gary, several questions. One, what do you make of Rogers' decision making in all of this? Go to that question first. Yeah, you know, Mike, uh, our listeners can't see it, but right behind me on my bookshelf is a Green Bay Packer bobblehead. And I'm a big, (laughs) big Packer fan. And, And I just am so disappointed in this. The guy's the NFL MVP. He's the leader of this team. He's why they succeed. He's that good. And to go through this and and lie to people and then deny lying. And it's the case, the whole case, Mike, from beginning to end is a a case study in, in, in being selfish, narcissistic. And he went on and tried to clean it up in an hour long radio interview or, you know, a few days after all of this happened. And he just made it worse. Yeah, he had no real explanation for why he lied, and he clearly had lied. Yeah, so it was, all, his, it was all dissembling, right? It was all dissembling. And look, you know, you're at top of the game. You know, the most admired player in the league. I guess maybe you think the rules aren't for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, who made the better sponsorship decision here? 
Previa Health or State Farm? Why? Well, I am totally into Previa Health. I don't know anything about them, but <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, there is just something, you know, not right about having this guy be your brand ambassador. And, 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 and I don't mean to, he's a football yeah. player, but mm-hmm. like almost 800,000 people have died of COVID in this country. Yeah. And here's a guy clearly acting irresponsibly, taking Invermectin on, mm-hmm. on the advice, as you say, of Joe Rogan, a, a podcaster. Uh, it, it's just, it's stunning to me that any company could feel comfortable having this person be the face of their organization. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and it's interesting. I, I mean, it's, quickly and easily understood on the Previa health piece, right? Yep. I mean, they're a healthcare company, right? You know, they, so how could they? And even State Farm, you think about it, you know, I mean, they're all about, you know, protecting people in their hour of need. <laughs> yes. You know, and that's what insurers do, particularly property and casualty insurers and health insurers. And, and, and so you look at this and, and, and it, it's tough. Now, my guess is, you know, one of the things that maybe State Farm did that Previa Health wasn't at liberty to do because of that connection with health is they probably went to, okay, what's the guy's Q scores? You know, exactly. what, you know, what does it ultimately mean? You know, is he still a valued a brand ambassador? They might've even commissioned a poll for all I know, but it, 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 it's hard to swallow. Oh, and, 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 and look, it, you know, at least a quarter of the country, the folks who are not vaccinated apparently agree with him. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's an element in this. And, you know, uh, Stephen Grazer, you know, at Harvard, he actually has done a lot of research through the years about celebrities and sports figures. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he coaches, in fact, when I was at State Farm, we had a relationship with him. But one of the things he, he used to talk about is, you know, will you have a, will this athlete, will this performer have another day to perform mm-hmm. and maybe change people's opinions over time. And, you know, if you look through it in that lens, sometimes some companies will go ahead and swallow hard and say, we'll, we'll hold on to the mm-hmm. sponsorship for now. We'll monitor it. And, you know, maybe they get back in the game, but, then it becomes harder to undo that contract Mm -hmm. if they come back and maybe don't perform as well. And then maybe people aren't paying as much attention, but that's, you know, this is one of the challenges of hiring celebrities. Exactly. Exactly. Gary, we all know your interest in NASA and space travel. I, I remember you going gaga when we had the former NASA spokesperson on. Oh, I know it. Program. We got to do more of that, Mike. We need more space on this on this podcast. <laughs> so I have one last item that caught my eye this week, and, and that was the response of a NASA spokesperson to a reporter's question. Apparently, this the SpaceX crew that is departing the International Space Station and headed home this next weekend is going to be in a capsule with a broken toilet (laughs) so when asked what the astronauts will need to do as a result the nasa spokesperson said use their undergarments (laughs) in my book that is one step back for man oh man mike (laughs) i agree with you by the way if i were ever coming back in in a spaceship i guarantee you i'd be using my undergarments 
broken toilet or not. <laughs> I'm with you there, buddy. Anyway, a step forward for our show will be the conversation with our guest, communications research expert and author, Mark Wiener. Our guest this week on The Crux is Mark Wiener, author of a new book, Public Relations Technology, Data and Insights, Igniting a Positive Return on Your Communications Investment. Now, Mark is known to many of our listeners and, and certainly a widely respected expert in our field and been really involved in, in lots of efforts over the years to introduce measurement into the public relations industry. And in fact, he's led research programs for scores of Fortune 1000 companies. He is the recipient, and this is the sort of the gold standard, no pun intended, for people involved in measurement. He received the 2018 Jack Felton Medal for Lifetime Achievement from the Institute for Public Relations, for whom he serves as a board member. And along with Mike and I, he is a member of the Arthur W. Page Society. Mark also, of course, puts his expertise to work commercially. He's founded and led businesses in the United States and internationally for 35 years. Really, when you, when you think about measurement in our business and its evolution and hopefully revolution, the first name that comes to mind is is Mark Wiener. So Mark, welcome to the Crux. Well, thank you for having me and thanks for that warm introduction. So, all right, so you've got a book out now and and we wanna talk about it. And again, uh, I'm interested in a lot of parts of this, but tell us about the book, the general concept and why you wrote it. Well, the general concept is, is captured in the title. PR Technology Data and Insights is the name of the book. And I saw that as sort of a hierarchy, that technology is a foundation Data is produced through the technology and insights are based on the data. So I, I see that there's a hierarchy and I think nowadays pretty much everybody has a tool of one type or another because so many of them are low cost or even free. Right. And that hierarchy was interesting to me because I've spent most of my career on the insights part, but the insights are based on what technology and data enable me to do as a consultant. And at this at the time I wrote it, it was COVID time and right, right. I was home. And it and after writing my first book in 2007, I, you know, I think it takes 14 years for these stories to accumulate. And the book <laughs> is, is full of references to, to companies like Ford Motor Company and Adobe, MasterCard and others where, where we had these experiences and they were open to sharing them in this book. And, and I'm interested in this hierarchy, Mark, that you describe. So you know, insights, uh, you know, I'm a former CCO along with Mike, that's what you're always looking for, right? Out of the data. Ultimately, what are the insights that come, come out of it and how do you act uh, on them? So, yes. so tell me what you mean by the, the hierarchy. So you have to have the technology that produces the data and the data that leads to insights. Is that? Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. So insights, I think, are the, are the goal. And right. you know, actionable insights even better. And technology really reflects only one third of what goes into uncovering an insight. So there's there's the technology that produces the data, but in order to interpret the data and to apply it properly, one has to have 
sector expertise. So that means an understanding of the industry in which you work, but also sector expertise in understanding public relations and the media and how communication works. And it also requires a third element, which is critical thinking and statistical acumen. Right. So when you bring those three elements together, you have the potential for an insight. And if you, and if any one of those parts are missing, then the, the, the process breaks down. Breaks down. All right. So we'll ask you for some, some examples of that later in the, in the interview. But I, I, I was struck by something that was in a description about your book, which says data technology and insights have forever changed the public relations and corporate communications function. Failure to adapt is more a matter of willingness than inability. So what do you what's what do you mean there, Mark? In other words, we have the tools today to refine our measurement, but some in some cases we don't have the will or resources. Is that what you're seeing? I think it's more a matter of will than resources. So when okay. you when you refer to yourself and Mike as you know, as as, as you're you're not typical CCOs mm-hmm. because you had the courage to do this. And it takes some courage. Well, I thought it was for some other reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it meant that you you were willing to see the 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 facts, whether they were, you know, whether they were complementary or they were critical, because you mm-hmm. recognize the need to reinforce any success, but also to address any shortcomings. And when I talk about unwillingness, there was an example. This was all made clear to me, I don't know what, like 20 years ago. Before that, I assumed that everybody measured because it was in every textbook and, you know, the, the, the academy spoke about it. And I just assumed everybody was doing it. They just didn't want to talk to me about it. <laughs> and then I, I was at, uh, the, I think it was PR Week Awards or something, like a social, you know, professional social situation. And there's a president of a mid-sized PR firm whose, whose clients are, are serious measurement types. And he said to me, he, this is the way he said it, measure. We would never measure. I, I would gladly forego being a proven success for never being a proven failure. And then he <laughs> went around, went back to the bar. I was in the middle of the room with my mouth wide open, like jaw dropped, because I, I realized in that moment that that was it. He, yeah. was, he was really telling me this. Interesting. Know, that's, yeah. that's a great story. It yes. is a great story. Well, and talking about great stories, I'm, Mark and I go back like to the beginning of dirt. I mean, you know, we worked together back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I was at Kodak. I was this this punk kid that thought that we needed to measure more things. And, and, and Mark had some of those tools, at least the tools that were available then. Mark, communications measurement and research has come a long way even since those days. Reflect a little bit, if you will, on how communications research has evolved. Well, in, in those days, well, so a couple of things. First of all, let me say that technology has always been a part of public relations. Mm-hmm. I think we might interpret that differently now, but the telephone was a form of technology. Typewriters were a form of technology. So technology has always been a part of what we do. But in the in the mid-60s, the first communications or public relations research firm was created, and that was PR Data, which was the company with whom hmm. I worked and with whom you worked at the time. And at that time, the primary measure was news coverage. 
So there was no such thing as social media at that time. Process was, you know, at the speed of, of business at that time. So there were no, you know, real-time access. There was no online access. And it was based on press clippings. And every, you know, twice a week, we'd get these big envelopes with press clippings. And then there would be people who would analyze them. And the technology at the time was sort of database technology. So, you know, entering in the name of the newspaper and the circulation and the date and which messages were communicated. But it was limited in what technology could do at that time and also limited by what public relations was at that time. So then it was mostly, you know, still very heavily driven by media relations. And I think now communications has evolved and the research has evolved with it. So to have, you know, there's real time and not just in terms of doing research in real time, but we live in a, in a, in a highly accelerated world where through social media or news, you know, reputations can be made or lost in seconds. And the, the speed of decision-making has, has accelerated so, so mm-hmm. quickly. That, that's probably the biggest change I see since those days. You know, I'm sure there was plenty of anxiety for all of us then at that pace, mm-hmm. but now it's, you know, it's infinitely faster. And yeah, no, you made a good point earlier relative to, you know, it's not so much that we measure, but kind of what we do with it. I'm curious as, I mean, clearly models have gotten more sophisticated and they're touching social media and it's more real time. What's your take on the current state of PR research and evaluation that you see inside companies? And are there gaps? Are there new things we should be doing and tending to? Well, if if I said there's no new thing, you'd just have to wait a minute and it would be a new thing. <laughs> That's, but I think there's, I honestly don't know how much more technology can do to accelerate the a communicator's ability to, to function. So there's I mean, there may be something revolutionary. I think there's progress being made on predictive analytics that'll mm-hmm. that'll soon make it much more accessible to others. Also, ability to understand the business impact of public relations relative to other forms of marketing and communication. Those things are have been around, but I think they're about to become much more highly democratized than ever before. And so, you know, the function continues to evolve and technology continues to keep pace with the profession. You know, that's really, that's really interesting. The, the predictive side of it, Mark. And, and I, I can remember, you know, I have been, I've been out of the CCO seat for four or five years now, and probably eight years ago or so, the, we were able to connect PR measurement to intent to buy among customers. Didn't mean they bought, but whether they had some intention or felt better about buying a GE product when I was was there. We thought that was, you know, we were really sticking it in the eye of the marketing folks, right? <laughs> that, that, that PR had resulted at least in some some opportunity for for big purchases. So, but I love the predictive part of this. Can you tell us any more about that, Mark? What do you see coming? The the obviously that's the holy grail of of PR is can we become a more sort of predictive function? Well, I think I think there's there are several ho- holy grails, and you mentioned two of them. Uh, predictive, you know, being able to see what's coming is, I think, it's very attractive for those who want to know. 
Yeah. So when I suggest that you and Mike, you know, are courageous CEOs, it's because you wanted to know that stuff. So, mm-hmm. You know, I'm surprised sometimes that how many people don't want to know or have a, what, you know, FOFA, fear of finding out <laughs> what may really be ahead. But the, the, once, you know, if you combine the technology and the data and an ability to interpret the data to make predictive insights, you can foresee a lot of important events of either your own organization or your competitors or opposition to be able to anticipate that certain you know, certain triggers in the, in, in the past have led to certain outcomes and that the likelihood is that those things will continue. So you yeah, can start to In fact, Mark, things. it's interesting that you say that because I can remember using what we're doing from a, a monitoring standpoint to look at not only how we were being received in the marketplace, but how our competitors were and what some of their market actions were and when they were doing them with the idea that that next cycle comes, whether it's a year or quarter, that we would try to disintermediate some of their activity so that we would get the positive coverage. So absolutely, that's that that's clearly where 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 people can gain kind of an upper hand in this. Absolutely, but if, so knowing what your competitors have done and being able to counter or mitigate an advantage is is I think like a first step. But being able to predict the likelihood that, you know, that they're going to experience a crisis or that there's, they're, they're approaching some threshold for breakthrough, some sort of breakout is, is very helpful because, it, you know, in, in, as we're talking about the accelerated pace of communication and business, having, you know, a 24-hour advantage can be huge in, in cases like that, Absolutely. where a single company can bring down a whole industry through their, you know, misbehavior. Mark, so let's get back to your book. And the great thing about it is, as you mentioned earlier, it includes case studies from across a range of industries and, and companies, best practice examples from Adobe, MasterCard, Southwest, Ford, and others. Can you give us an example of a best practice that's outlined in the book? Yeah, so there, there are three categories I cite as being business outcomes that PR can affect. One is PR's ability to drive sales, which mm-hmm. is the sexy, the sexiest one, the sec or the most alluring. The second is efficiency. So PR's ability to do more for less and with less. And you hinted at that when you said the marketing people were envious of what PR could do. Yep. That was probably what they envied is the is the relatively low cost. So that is probably the most accessible form of return on investment because you know if you just operate more you know smarter and you know don't invite all those people to the press conference or whatever or send them on the trip save money but you're only saving a percentage of what is already a relatively small budget so it's the most accessible but it has the lowest impact and the third has the which has the greatest impact is preventing catastrophic cost. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, that's that's easily the most impactful. And you can see plenty of business cases in the last few years where billions of dollars in market cap have been lost through mishandling of reputation. So the examples that, that I cited, Adobe was a great example because it was an efficiency play that they management looked at a competitor of theirs and wondered, you know, why this competitor was always generating more coverage. And so this analysis was done to determine that while it's true 
that this competitor generates more coverage. It wasn't the sort of coverage that Adobe wanted. And in through this analysis, they recognized first that you know it was true, the other company was generating more. But when Adobe looked closer at their own practices, they saw that they were supporting a list of, I think it was 5,000 journalists. And when the analysis was done, it was revealed that only, that something like 4,500 of those 5,000 journalists had only written about Adobe once in two years. <laughs> so they made an easy decision. Let's not continue to support those 4,500. Then when they, they dug deeper to look at the demographics of the people who, you know, who they target, CMOs, CTOs, CEOs, right. they studied social media activity of people who identified themselves as, as having those titles. And, and three quarters of the time, they were citing a story, like with a hyperlink to that story. And the Adobe uh, team was able to see that of the 500 media, 200 of them were most highly read by their target audience. So that became their A-list. And after a year, they were able to show management, the, the skeptical management who's, who's, who was jealous of the other company, <laughs> that they were able to generate just as much coverage overall, but much greater returns from target audience from the media with the highest penetration among yeah. the target audience. So that was a great case of innovation. That's fantastic. Yeah. And efficiency because they were able to reduce their costs so dramatically by just focusing on the media that matter. Excellent example. And, and Mark, um, particularly as someone who teaches crisis communication at Boston University, I'm very interested in that third category where you talked about preventing catastrophic cost using measurement. Is there an example? Probably there's probably not a lot of people that <laughs> want you to name them in this case, but is there an example where you can tell yes. us how that, how that happens? Yes. So, you know, these examples of, I'll say, poor decision-making leading to catastrophic cost are all over the place. And I, and I don't need to, I don't want to, nor do I need to name those companies because there's just a long, long list. And the impact is felt on market cap and basically the loss of reputation equity. And I was listening to Leslie Gaines Ross interview that you had, and she attributed, I think you were, you attributed something like 80 or 90% of, of market cap is based on reputation among right. a certain segment of the investment community, I think. It was, that, it was a remarkable figure. Well, in this case, it was an energy company that paid dividends. And the CEO made a statement, a public statement, about the future of the dividend and how strong the company was doing and how that dividend will never be reduced, only to find within a matter of weeks that the company was not going to hit its numbers. And one of the considerations was uh, reducing the dividend. So within weeks, the, the, you know, the claim from the CEO was to be challenged. And the CEO wisely brought together the legal team and the communications team in the same meeting. And the legal team's advice was to do nothing, say nothing, let it happen, while the communications team suggested that they get out in front of the story, tell people what's happening, why it's happening, and what they're going to do about it. And the CEO wisely hired us to do an analysis looking at six energy companies, each of whom had missed earnings, three of whom took the lawyer's advice and three of whom had taken the communicator's advice. And in all cases, once this announcement was made in the, in the first year of that announcement, the stock price for all six companies went down by about, I think, 15% in a matter of two weeks. 
But those companies who took the PR team's advice rebounded most quickly and most sustainably so that on average, they ended up the year, the 12-month period following the announcement in positive territory, up, I think, 8% on average. The companies that took the lawyer's advice, one of them went out of business and the others just kept going down and down and down over time. So while this was not a cause and effect kind of experiment, it was enough information for the CEO to see the wisdom of the communicator's advice. That's what he did. And sure enough, within for two weeks, the stock price went down, rebounded, and actually came back by the end of 12 months at positive 12%. So they were able to show you know, the wisdom of a good decision, good communication decision on market capitalization, and it came true. That's terrific. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's terrific. I'm curious, Mark, if you were building a communications team today, how would you staff it? to make sure that you had the right research, the right information, the right sort of antennae, if you will, at your fingers in order to navigate a world that's uh, that's always on and seemingly more contentious? Well, I think it's happening. The, the talent you're describing is, is coming out of universities now. So there are courses in communications research and there's courses in data science in undergrad, but also there's deg- there are degrees in postgrad. Mm-hmm. So there's a level of talent that's being prepared for this life. You know, when I, you know, in, in, in I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I, I know it uh, applies to Gary and me, at least. We started our careers as journalists mm-hmm. in journalism, in the media business, which is not data oriented. And that crop of CCOs, they're, they're retiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. No, it's I, I, I was an English literature major. Yeah, me too. So, so one of the, you know, it's important to be able to tell a story around your data, I tell myself. And actually, there's, there's a series I just produced with the Arthur Page Society called The Learning Lab, and I cite Shakespeare. So that, that, that liberal arts education did not go to waste. Uh, but we weren't, we weren't trained for math. I, you know, I think the last math class I took was called Math for Non-Math Majors. Which was like maybe admitting defeat and no hope. <laughs> and that was a senior year in high school. It's like already admitting I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. Anyway, but I'm lucky enough to to find the talent that we're talking about now, and that talent is not so exclusive anymore. Now that the yeah. tools are so ubiquitous, the talent is being bred for this purpose. And I think if you look at first jobs at an agency, for example, I think this is the sort of thing that the newly employed do every day, work on the platform and produce, you know, monitoring reports or simple media analysis, or if they're trained for it, bringing in other forms of data science into communication. And and the other thing is, so that's one thing is that talent is available now in a way that it wasn't, but probably more importantly, the talent and the expectations of senior leadership have changed. So these, you know, CCOs and CMOs, CCOs, all know now that everything can be measured, everything within the organization. And when the communications team takes itself out of that equation and chooses not to measure, this is the unwillingness part you referenced earlier, Gary, they're really take they're really out of it. It's not just out of touch, but they're not a part of the budget allocation. They can't demonstrate a return. And so they're left to the side. And that's why one reason why PR budgets have historically been so small is because there's no, there hasn't been sufficient progress in 
communicating a positive return. And that's why, and that explains the focus, the, the subtitle of the book. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, in fact, years ago, Mark, when you and I interacted, I remember us having a conversation where the gist of it was something along the lines of everything can be measured. We just need to be able to see it and then understand that if we measure it, will it make a difference? And I know that from working in agencies, like when I was the, the head of, or I was the U.S. CEO for Burson Marsteller, to your point, lots of great young talent is out there. And, and it's, one of the, it's, it's, it's one of the tools in their toolkit. And they're just going to get stronger and more adept over time. And that's important and that's good. Mark, you, Gary, and I are, are longtime members of Page Society. Page is building some terrific online education programs. And, I, and I've learned that you just finished taping a series based on your book for Page's new learning lab. Uh, what can we expect from that series? Well, you can learn in 90 minutes what it would take you four days to read. <laughs> there's that i'm in, I'm in. <laughs> the cliff notes version all right <laughs> that that won't help book sales though my publisher won't be happy with that well it's the book in miniature and i follow the application aspects what i call the the public relations continuum that begins with a landscape analysis followed by objective setting based on what one learns during that landscape analysis strategy development, tactical creation and execution, evaluation, and then evaluation for continuous improvement. And so there's a cycle. And with every, every revolution of that cycle, communications performance ought to improve in terms of its return on investment. In, in other words, becoming more and more efficient, more and more productive, and more informative to the business, not just to improve PR results, but to improve communications impact on business results. Well, the learning lab concept is really terrific that Paige is doing this. And, and while you're right, as a, as a professor, I see this new talent that you talk about at BU and the courses that they take, but teams also need to develop the people that are already there. And so this sounds like a, a great opportunity. Well, and, and it's, there's, there's a shared responsibility, not just for t emerging talent to have these skills, but for management to recognize the importance of those skills yeah. and to utilize them fully. So until an agency's client demands this kind of measurement for return on investment, or until a, CC, a CEO demands a return on investment from his or her CCO, the comms team, uh, yeah, it's gonna, it, it, this kind of stasis will continue. But I, I, I'm encouraged by what I see. Well, how does, how does, how can measurement be put to work for the new responsibility or some of the new responsibilities we see CCOs and their teams assigned in light of what's happened over the past few years. You know, we've been trying to talk on the crux this fall about all the things going on, the broadening responsibilities of communications teams to really lead the social acumen in many ways of these institutions, these enterprises and companies. ESG responsibilities in some cases have been handed to the communications teams. I know this is a broad question, Mark, but how does measurement help a company understand the environment and determine if it's aligned 
with broadly held social values, which is something that I think what's, is the bottom line for ESG. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And I, I think that ESG represents a great step forward for business and our society, but also for public relations in particular. Because I, I see that CEOs feel compelled to say something in light of these rapidly emerging social events like Black Lives Matter and Me Too mm-hmm. and, and COVID, I think was another one where CEOs felt compelled and the insurrection on Capitol Hill that there were, by the time that the insurrection happened, CEOs had two or three opportunities to make some sort of statement in light of these right. explosive events. And I, and I saw that, you know, I saw that, that many stepped forward in an analysis, a simple analysis that I was a part of, it appeared in PR News, I think. It showed that CEOs of companies who responded quickly and affirmatively by, in this case, affirm, affirmation meant taking money away from political action committees mm-hmm. in light of the insurrection were, were treated very favorably in the, in the media. You know, I think there's a cross-section of society that was you know, that admired Ben and Jerry's or Patagonia, for example, mm-hmm. for stepping up while there was another segment of the population that, you know, chose to buy different, different ice cream and different outerwear. But they, they were generally praised in the, in the media. So yeah, this definitely. is a way for a company, another company, a CEO who might be on the fence about what to say or how to say it, it might provide some reassurance that making a strong statement can be a net positive for the organization's reputation. It would also guide the CCO or the uh, you know, the communications consultant in advising that CCO, a CEO, about what to say and how to say it based on what works, and and of course in light of what the CEO feels exactly is, is most important. So I think measurement is a way to pretest, and you can do this very quickly to pretest messages. And of course, I can't imagine now any organization that is not preparing or already prepared for the next event, whatever it might be. But, you know, these sensitive social issues are, you know, popping up all the time. And And you can, and to your point, you can be predictive. You, you, you sort of know what your risks are as a company reputationally, and then more broadly socially. So as you say, you can pretest some of those things and uh, helps you to make a quicker, better decision. Yes. So in order to do that, it, re- it requires ongoing, continuous measurement. So in that, in a moment, uh, like that, that CEO from the power company, that, that analysis took two weeks before uh, <laughs> right. we could provide that guidance. Now that, you know, you don't have two weeks anymore no. for an event like this. So uh, it requires ongoing analysis to be able to take us you know a slice of data and you know from last week and from last year when the last thing happened and make some and draw some insights from that and make recommendations but it it ought to inform decision making and you know if you think about it this might be this might feel like a new concept to communication but every other part of the business is already using data to make fast important decisions and it just feels like communications function is among the last to come to that conclusion. What is next in PR measurement? What technologies or capabilities are on the horizon that our listeners should be paying attention to and know about? Well, that is a good question because I don't know how 
technology can get any faster. So it's not, you know, technology is doing already what it ought to do, which is enabling human expertise to make better decisions and to take more constructive action. And I think the, you know, the media databases, these are the most common forms of technology and communication, media databases, journalist databases, mm-hmm. social influencers, editorial calendars, that kind of stuff, release distribution. I don't know how much faster or better they're going to get. The, 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 the most promising elements that I envision are predictive, like I was saying, I, 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 and that is technologically driven. The other is the emergence of faster and more accurate and less expensive forms of marketing and communications modeling that can tell you, uh, you know, that can isolate the impact of public relations relative to advertising or some other form of marketing communication. And in the past, I've done, I've done maybe 50 of those, but they tended to be labor intensive and time consuming. But the outcome for public relations was always extraordinary in PR's ability to deliver a return on investment in terms of sales and revenue generation that was something like 800 times better than the average mass market advertising program. Right. So once people adopt these technologies and these methods, public relations, while we're not necessarily competing with marketing, you know, we ought to be working together, but there's a point at which, you know, resources are allocated. And when, as I was saying before, if you don't have the data to support your budget request, you're going to have much harder time. And as opposed to these cases where people were delivering these 800% returns or more, it's not a question of how much, it's like how often, how much, how much more. And actually there was a GE example. One of my favorite examples was from GE. Uh, It was from, I think it was when Stren was a product. I don't know if fishing line is still a thing at DuPont, it was fishing line, or, or it might've been refrigerators, but there was a, there was a uh, sorry, big difference, but it was a fishing tournament. They sponsored a fishing tournament. And this one person recognized that the tournament cost more than the sales generated because it was for, it was refrigerators. It was a very specific type of marine refrigerator, uh-huh. like an onboard boat refrigerator. And they didn't sell, there wasn't enough sales to warrant the, the tournament. So this communicator for that division stopped the program. And as a result of his incredible return on investment that year, he was rewarded with an 800% budget increase. And I thought that was the, I thought that was the biggest victory. I remember being interviewed by PR week and they're saying, what's the best program you ever heard of? And I told him that story. And I thought that was the end of the story that he got an 800% budget increase. I spoke to him afterwards and he told me that, that, that there was an even better story because he couldn't spend the money. He couldn't spend that much money. So he gave half of it back. And after that, <laughs> his, his reputation was golden. That that guy, I, I wish I remembered his name, but he he made an incredible case for for public relations because you know it definitely delivers a positive return in every case I've ever seen. And I've never seen a point of diminishing return. So it continues to to generate. If you double your investment, you'll see an improvement. That's not necessarily true with advertising or other forms of marketing communication. And in several cases, I've seen it's the only marketing communication element that lifts all boats. So if reputation is positive, the ads are more effective, the event is more successful and all that. That's right. And, and, And that surround sound can only be created through PR in many cases, because you can't 
in some markets, particularly where it's highly expensive to to advertise your way to market awareness or reputational excellence. So well, and you also have the issue of of, of targeting, right? In the sense of, I mean, you go to broad-based advertising and you know, you're using, you know, a, a, a huge megaphone where your intended audience might be much more narrow. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the other technological breakthroughs will be for targeting, that the, da- mm-hmm. the data exists. It's not used widely by PR people, but the same sort of targeting that you're describing, you know, you, you know that the circulars that you get mm-hmm. in your mailbox are different than the ones I get. Yeah. You guys get, I think, Mercedes circulars, <laughs> and I get the domestic brands. But you know that it's ta- it's tailored to lots of information that we give freely when we register yeah. for different things, right? So they know exactly. our income, they know our age, they know everything already uh, in ways that you know we would never even dream of. But public relations can use the same tactics, and that's basically what Adobe did right. by targeting just those media with high penetration among. CEOs, CMOs, and CTOs. That's what they they found it in a different way than an advertiser would have. But those advertising databases are also available for communicators to be much more targeted. Well, Mark, I want to know, this has been fascinating. This is really terrific. I I just want to know, based on what you just said, though, that why is there a Subaru in my garage? I'm I'm not... uh, Well, you make uh, you you made these choices. You live in <laughs> in, a, in an exclusive Hudson Valley community, right? That, that's the hip car. Clearly, clearly cars aren't important to you, Gary. <laughs> well, he, well he, it snows where you live, so you have to be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it snows in June. So, listen, Mark. This has been terrific. Mark Weiner's new book is Public Relations Technology: Data and Insights. Igniting a positive return on your communications investment. Thanks for sharing so much information and examples with us. And and Mark is a is a great friend and always, always willing to help out colleagues and particularly has done a lot of good work through IPR, the Measurement Commission, and just a real widely respected person in our in our profession. So we're glad to have you on the Crux, Mark. Thanks for being here, Mark. I'm very humbled. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.